Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the disturbing features of the time we're living in is that we have enormous economic prosperity, but not shared economic prosperity. The way the U.S. does business looks unsustainable on economic and social levels. Stephen Perlstein has kept an eye on the U.S. economy for 30 years at the Washington Post. He won a Pulitzer Prize in 2008 for prescient commentary on the financial crisis, and he has some suggestions for getting things back on track. His book is Can American Capitalism Survive? Why Greed is Not Good, Opportunity is Not Equal, and Fairness Won't Make Us Poor. Thanks for joining us. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Uh, you spend a good chunk in, in the beginning of your book really talking about morality. And for a, for a book kind of about capitalism, it um, comes at it from a moral point of view, and you talk about maximizing shareholder value and how that's corrupting us. And um, how did you get to this place where you ended up with a kind of morality lesson for capitalism? Well, um, I got uh, – I've been doing this for a while, and uh, I've gotten rather frustrated – uh, with the debate um, about our economic system and, and uh, inequality and uh, business behavior, and it, it sort of it came to, it was, it's come to a stalemate, and we just keep talking past each other. And the, the left says inequality is bad, and uh, capitalists are greedy, and the other side says you know you're just envious, and uh, this is the only way we have to get rich. And so I, I, I just I thought it was important to go back to some first principles and to figure out why it is that. Many of us are very unsatisfied with the system, including those of us, including myself, who are doing quite well. Um, but we have a situation today where, you know, 57 percent of millennials say they don't support capitalism. And this is just 30 years after, you know, we beat communism. We, we pulled ahead of the Japanese again and the Germans. So you'd think we would, you know, uh, be great. And our economy looks to be doing uh, well right now. Stock markets are at a peak. But people don't feel satisfied by it and uh, some of that is because people are left behind. But uh, a lot of it is because we just uh, – we think it's lost its moral legitimacy. What do you do about something like maximizing shareholder value? There is this school of thought in the world of business and they think that is the be-all and end-all. And you, you kind of break it down and talk about how it's shafting customers, it's shafting workers, it's shafting a lot of other people. You know, you have a situation where the heads of the, some of the largest companies in the world say very publicly and their directors, well, we have to move our headquarters out of the United States so we can avoid paying taxes to the United States. Uh, this is the same government, by the way, that trained their workers, that uh, did the basic research that resulted in their products and, uh, and that gets their products to market and protects their intellectual property. And they actually say – and they say we have a fiduciary duty to do this. If we don't do this, we are not doing our duty to our shareholders. And first of all, that's legally false. Uh, but second, it sets up this this uh, sort of notion that all oh, businesses are amoral, um, and that's that's actually wrong. A market economies, and nobody knew this better and understood this better than Adam Smith, the first great um, uh, market champion. We have to pursue our selfish interests in, in capitalism, but we also have to be cooperative, and we have to learn how to be cooperative. Um, and if we don't, then this this system called capitalism doesn't work. We have to balance those the sort of the selfish gene with the cooperative gene, uh, to put it in Darwinian terms. And uh, so, like, what do you do about maximized shareholder value? Well. Um, you can make the law very explicit. 
people have criticized me. When I criticize maximizing shareholder value, CEOs come back at me and 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 they say, "Well, what else would you have us do? You know, would you would you maximize uh, employee pay, or would you maximize uh, consumer low prices?" And I said, "No, you have to balance all those things. You've always had to balance all those things, um, and there's no formula for it." But the maximizing shareholder value people are a sort of one size fits all philosophy. They think all companies should be done and run in that way. My view is if some companies want to run that way, they should advertise themselves that way. They should tell Wall Street they're going to do that. They should tell their customers and their employees, and we'll see how many customers and employees they get. But if a company wants to do something else, if they want to balance the interest more, if they want to run it more for the interests of their customers uh, or their community, um, that should be fine. And as long as they tell everybody ahead of time what their philosophy is, then let a thousand flowers bloom and we'll see how those ruthless maximizers do. It seems like the the philosophy is binding all these companies together. I once had the experience of talking with CEOs of two enormous drug companies. And I thought, well, these guys will be kind of rivals. These guys will have some, they will have some uh, economic tension between them. They sat down and started bonding immediately over their next shareholder meetings. They were loathing them. They they felt oppressed by the shareholder meetings, yes. but they, they their whole job was about their shareholder meetings. This whole class of people is may not even like the system they have they don't. And, and but don't know what to do about they, it. They, they hate these activist investors who are the instrument by which they're forced um, because if they don't pay attention to their share price, then someone's going to do a takeover bid uh, and, and basically fire them. And so they're all afraid of it. Uh, they don't have to have that many of these to – and many of these sort of hangings to uh, focus the mind of the CEO. And, of course, they're compensated in a way that focuses it as well. But they don't like this. They don't like this system. Um, and they want to go back to the way things were in the 1950s and 60s where it was a period what was known as managerial capitalism and we trusted managers to balance all those interests for the long-term benefit of the corporation. The corporation is the thing that directors and executives legally owe their fiduciary duty to and that means to its long-term sustained prosperity and profitability. Um, but we've gotten away from that because of this sort of sh- uh, focus on the short-term uh, share price and they don't like it as much as we don't like it. Uh, who likes it is Wall Street. I'm talking with Stephen Perlstein. He's the author of Can American Capitalism Survive? Why Greed is Not Good, Opportunity is Not Equal, and Fairness Won't Make Us Poor. Um, you talk about this managerial capitalism and, and contrast it with shareholder capitalism in the book. And um, this is uh, – how did we get from one to the other? Why did we slip to that, that place? There's two reasons. Um, a good reason and a bad reason. The good reason is that under managerial capitalism, if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, our companies, our big companies, which set the tone for business, the business culture, they were tremendously profitable. This was after World War II. The rest of the world was um, – half of it was destroyed. Um, we were the technological leader, the military leader, everything. We were on top of the heap and our companies earned a lot of profits and they shared those profits with their communities, with their customers and with their employees. When we started to have global competition, their profits got to shrink. And the first thing they did was actually they, they put their shareholders second. And there was a, a decade 
basically from the mid-70s to the mid-80s when there were shareholders earned negative return overall. That is, the stock market went sideways for an entire decade. It was a lost decade. So they didn't balance the interests well. Um, and they were under assault from competition from abroad. And they had to get leaner and meaner. Um, there was a time, I'm not sure you're old enough to remember, but I am, when competitiveness was the big issue. We worried whether we were going to lose out to the Japanese and the Germans. And that was even before the Chinese arrived. And we turned it around. Within a decade, the United States economy was the most competitive in the world again. And we needed to do that. So some of these ideas that we have about, uh, about how to run companies did change and it was for the good. We now push those ideas way too far. The second way, reason it happened was – and the instrument by which it happened is these takeover threats. During the late 1970s, someone invented the hostile takeover using a lot of borrowed money, which was finance, which is basically borrowed by way of junk bonds, which were new things. And the threat of takeover forced companies uh, to be run in a way that in which Wall Street uh, called the tune. And thus it has been ever since. How do we straighten things like that out? You've got a, a nifty set of solutions at the end of the book. Uh, where do you start with, with companies? I want to say first off that the most important thing that changed were what – sociologists or social scientists called social norms. That is, what we as a society considered acceptable or not. It used to be unacceptable for a CEO to pay himself $800 million a year, which one did last year. Uh, it used to be unacceptable to lay off people cavalierly uh, without any uh, severance and without any warning, without any you know, ability to try to fix things up. That used to be unacceptable. It became acceptable. And we need to change the social norms back so that they represent what, what our moral instincts tell us is right and wrong. Um, because for the last 30 years, we've been told, ignore your moral instincts. Okay, because we need that to be competitive. And the answer is no, you don't ignore your moral instincts. You listen to them and try to figure out a way to uh, behave that way and also um, remain competitive. Well, how so, do you, well, how so, how do you, how do, you do, that? do that for for companies? Well, one suggestion I have is, and this is complicated. I don't want to get into details, but corporations get. Uh, some tax get some tax breaks for doing certain things. For one thing, there are the, the, all these bonuses they give to their executives. Those are deductible. That's a legitimate business expense. They can deduct it from their revenue to, to, to figure their profit. Well, what I would say is our tax code should say if you're going to do that for top executives, you need to have a profit sharing plan for all your employees. And if you don't, then you're not going to get to deduct that. They also get favorable tax treatment for these share buybacks that are going on now at record pace where companies buy back their shares. They do that to, to drive up the stock price and they spend billions of dollars on that uh, and sometimes tens of billions and they borrow the money uh, in many instances. We ought to say, you know what? We won't give you that favorable tax treatment unless you have a profit sharing plan. So those are some ways to nudge them in that direction. I tend to be, you know, I don't want to have a rule that says you must do this or you must do that in terms of the way you run companies. I think we want to try to avoid that. But we can, we can nudge things in the right direction. But the bigger thing is to talk about this. It's for you and me to have this conversation and to try to change the social norm so a CEO doesn't want to do it. 
How do you feel about stronger unions? Germany has people, union people on their boards. That's just how they do it. Um, I wouldn't require I wouldn't require all companies to have union people on their board. I don't believe in one size uh, fits all, but we do need stronger unions. We probably need different kinds of unions, uh, Jerome. That is, we only have one model of union now. You have an election. If half the people say it, then the union, which is usually an international union, negotiates your wages, your working conditions, your benefits, uh, everything. Um, There are other ways to have employees have uh, a, a stake and a role in the governance of a company. And we ought to experiment with different kinds of, of models. Right now, there's this one that is, that is under the federal law and they have to go through these procedures. And the businesses have figured out how to kill unions that way. We ought to, we ought to experiment with different kinds of unions uh, having different kinds of power. And, uh, but we also have to increase the, the threat and the ability to do, do it under the old way too. Right now – Here's what companies do. You know, Jerome, you're going to organize a union uh, and you talk to a few of your uh, colleagues. Uh, the owner of the company comes and fires you. That's illegal actually. And 10 years later, they will be fined for that. <laughs> okay? Which, and you will have gone on to at least one or two other jobs and it will all be forgotten. We have to make it so that if, if they behave in that, in that ruthless and thuggish behavior, they will be immediately sanctioned. Um, and one thing to do is if you behave in that way, then the union wins. There won't even have to be a vote. If they get 50 signatures on a petition, they win. There won't be a vote. Uh, so that's one way to prevent that. But we need to at least establish the threat of unionization in order to get the attention of those who run the companies. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Stephen Perlstein. He's the author of Can American Capitalism Survive? Why Greed is Not Good, Opportunity is Not Equal, and Fairness Won't Make Us Poor. Stephen Perlstein's been writing at The Washington Post for 30 years and won the Pulitzer Prize in 2008. I wanted to talk some about universal basic income. A lot of people are talking about this on the left and the right. And you come out in favor of it. You've got your own bells and whistles you'd put on it. Uh, Why do you think universal basic income is a good idea? I have to start back with a previous point, which is that one of the things we've lost in, in terms of social norms is the feeling that we all are responsible for each other. We're all in this together. And we all because we're Americans, should enjoy equally the bounty of our country. And the bounty isn't just the natural resources, but this incredible political infrastructure, the the political system that we have, um, the social system we have. We are are all – we inherited that uh, from those who came before us and we're all entitled to an equal benefit of it. So the way I like to think of universal basic income is as a dividend – we all are shareholders in this thing called America, Inc., and we all deserve a dividend, the same dividend, no matter whether we're rich or we're poor. And that's the basis by which I sort of establish, would establish this universal basic income, which is quite a bit smaller than most other people's. But in return for that, because we are all Americans, we have a responsibility. And so I would marry that annual dividend that everyone gets with a responsibility to put in two or three years of national service sometime during your life. Um, and to me, that sets up the sort of right framework for this, which is 
uh, we all inherited something and that we are all responsible for this together and we, that we are responsible for each other just as we are all entitled uh, to enjoy uh, the country's bounty. You're big on social capital, rebuilding social capital in the country. Right, which social capital is a fancy name for trust in each other, trust in our institutions, and a willingness to cooperate, which often means sacrificing my short-term personal interests for our collective long-term interests. You also have some thoughts about antitrust legislation and the size of businesses and the kind of winner-take-all thing that we've got going here. Well, how do you bust up this kind of situation? I want to be clear that I'm not really for necessarily busting up big companies. Um, that might or might not be a good idea. Um, there are times when you need to. But here's the problem. Antitrust law, if you go back and look at the laws, they're actually very short and simple. And they, by the way, they're quite old. They go back to the early you know, 1900s and they've been a little bit revised in the 1930s. Antitrust law is judge-made law. It's made case by case. It's, it's through case law. And the case law is stuck in the industrial era. It, and the way companies compete and, and the way industries are organized is completely different than it was in that era. There's a new economics to it and it, that needs a new set of, 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 uh, of precedents, legal precedents, and we, we don't have them. And we need regulators and legislators and judges who are willing to take a fresh look at the economics and then come up with a new set of judge-made decisions and precedents that apply to an industry like Facebook. I'm not on Facebook, but probably almost everyone who's listening to this either is or was on Facebook. Uh, billions of people around the world are. And we want to be on Facebook because everyone else is on Facebook. It's called a network. And we want the network to be as big as possible because the more people that are on it, the more useful it is to me. Well, the problem is that's a winner-take-all kind of competition. That is in the nature of such things. By the way, it was in the nature of telephones too, which is why we had one phone company back yep. in the old days and we regulated it. So if it is a natural monopoly, which it might be, then we need to treat it differently. We need to regulate it and we need to give it a monopoly and then say, OK, but now we're going to regulate it. Um, or we could bust it up or we could say, OK – it's a network and it's a monopoly, but you know what? I bet you in five or ten years there'll be something else come along like Instagram and all of a sudden not everyone will be on Facebook. They'll migrate to this other thing. So don't worry about the monopolies because they're temporary. That's fine. But then you don't let Facebook buy Instagram. And that's the problem. They let these big companies buy their way into adjacent markets or incipient markets. That's where we need to draw the line right away because that's how they are squashing the possibility that they will be threatened by a new monopolist because they buy them up before they get anywhere near the ability to do that. How do we get to a point where we can do that legally? Right now it seems like we have – a Supreme Court, and you write about uh, getting money out of politics, and the Supreme, uh, talk about an activist Supreme Court. Uh, we've got Judge Kavanaugh looking like he might be confirmed soon. You've been writing about his uh, things he said about a case about Natural Resources Defense Council that could be precedent sending. How do you move the courts? That well, and that's a problem because Judge Kavanaugh is exactly the kind of judge who would listen to my argument and say, "No way." 
that that's too much government involvement uh, in the economy. Let the market decide. And we need judges who, who are activists a little bit in the other direction, which is this law doesn't work for us now and we need new precedents and it's my job to come up with ones that are reasonable. And uh, the courts have been quite reluctant uh, to do that in part because the Supreme Court in recent years has has been very down on antitrust. There hasn't been actually a major Supreme Court antitrust case uh, in decades. They don't like them and they want to leave the law as it is and they want it to sort of fall into disuse and to some degree that's what has happened. Um, and the reason it's fallen into disuse is because the tools we have aren't appropriate for this kind of, of competition in the high-tech sectors. Um, but the, we need new law. And uh, uh, I think a Judge Kavanaugh uh, would not want to address that. And that's bad for our economy because what will happen is we'll, we'll get ossified um, where the big companies will stay big. They'll, they'll resist technological change because it's threatening and we will fall behind – other countries. I'm talking with Stephen Perlstein. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner from the Washington Post. His new book is Can American Capitalism Survive? Why Greed is Not Good, Opportunity is Not Equal, and Fairness Won't Make Us Poor. Coming up after the break, we'll continue the conversation. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking today with Stephen Perlstein. He is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for his prescient columns in the Washington Post around the 2008 financial crisis. His new book, which is aimed at fixing our economy, is Can American Capitalism Survive? Why Greed's Not Good, Opportunity is Not Equal, and Fairness Won't Make Us Poor. You can see Stephen Pearlstein tonight at the bookstall in Winnetka at 6.30. There's a talk, a question and answer, and a signing of the new book. I wanted to talk for a second about uh, education. You, you've got a section in the book where you think we should overhaul our education system. Uh, we've definitely got problems uh, from college to preschool. How do you do it? Well, first of all, I would focus on K through 12. Um, that's where our real problem is. If you want to know why more poor kids uh, don't go to college, it's because they're not qualified to go to college because they've received a lousy K through 12 education. If you could solve that, we've solved most of the other problems. Uh, it's, it's no longer affordability, although that is something of a problem, but it's a more of a middle class problem than for poor kids. Um, I'm going to give you a little uh, a social science fact from which I derive this plan that I have or this idea that I have. It turns out that your educational achievement is – can be predicted much better by the socioeconomic composition of the, of the school you attend than your own family's socioeconomic condition. What that means in effect is if you put a lot of poor kids 
uh, from families that uh, don't read to their kids and aren't highly educated uh, and don't get nutrition, good nutrition, and parents don't pay a lot of attention uh, to to the schooling. If you put all of them in the same class, they're not going to do well. That you need basically desegregation of the public schools by class. We did it by race, but we didn't do it by class. And you need that in order for there to be equal educational opportunity. The problem is that we live in class-segregated communities. And so the schools reflect that class segregation. And we need a different system, a different system of, of both financing and organizing public schools so that the school districts are large enough geographically so that there are rich kids and poor kids and middle-income kids in the, in the district and there's a lot of freedom within the district, these larger districts, to go to whatever schools you want. They could be specialty schools. Um, uh, they could just be local schools. But to mix things up class-wise in the public schools and to finance public schools not on the basis of your local property tax but on the basis of some sort of statewide tax that is distributed fairly so that poor districts don't have poorly funded schools and they don't have districts where you have high concentrations of poor kids going uh, in the same classroom. You're saying a lot of things that make perfectly good sense. There are also things that have rustled up enormous resistance in the past in this country, uh, resistance to changing our schools, uh, antitrust legislation, uh, universal basic income seems really hard to do, changing uh, corporations, how they do this. How do you get to a spot where people want to change this? Because the powers that be don't want to change anything. Um, and, uh, you know, not too long ago, I had Walter Scheidel on the program. He wrote a book called The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality. And he says the only time you can change inequality once you've got it in the course of history is with plague or world wars or gigantic catastrophic events that just really level things out. Otherwise, inequality has been the social norm. And we are just returning to the social norm and we we cannot we cannot do all these things because they have captured the the power well it's certainly true that those things have worked <laughs> in the past to do that um uh, in large part i think as i recall from the book because they wipe out the, the wealth of the wealthy uh you know wars aren't good for business as it were and uh, or for investing but um i don't think it's true it's not true in our history um, actually, the progressive movement uh, came in the early 1900s. There wasn't a war before then. There was World War I just after it. Um, but I, I don't think it has to be that way, particularly in our country. Um, and uh, so how do you do it? Well, one way is you talk about it. Um, the pendulum swings. You know, people thought that we couldn't overcome the union resistance and the resistance of the regulatory state in Washington in order to make our economy more competitive, and we did that. Um, so we can move back. I'd say the number one barrier to that, however, is the problem of money in politics. The people who have wealth and, uh, and power use that wealth and power to preserve 
the norms that we have now and the rules that we have now. And they use money to do that. We have the only system in the world, really, that basically allows rich people to buy votes. I mean, it just happens to go through TV stations, but um, <laughs> it's basically that's what we allow. And we've got to stop it. And we need a constitutional amendment. And if we don't do that, I'd say, Jerome, that all the other th- ideas I have, they'll never see the light of day. This is the first thing we have to do to change things. And when we do that, and I bet we do, when we do that, then people will have the confidence again in the public policy creation process to then do some other things which might be bold and uh, be seen today as radical. Can we ever count on a billionaire to do that? We've got two billionaires running for governor in Illinois. Uh, there are, uh, you know, we have a billionaire president. We uh, Maybe. This is the <laughs> <laughs> and, and we have a billionaire who just committed $20 million to the Senate race named Michael Bloomberg. So, there, you know, there are billionaires who realize this problem. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett realizes this is a problem. Um, but but they're, they're controlling the system. Even the most well-intentioned billionaire. I just read a book about that quoted one of the Tish hairs and who said, what would, you know, people who are really seemingly nice, they give to everything. And what what could take your money away from you? And all she had was a revolution. Well, I think we can – I think people are – I don't know. This last week sort of convinces me that uh, a couple of things. Number one, people are pretty fed up. Uh, and and they might just go for an idea like this. Th- certainly, they understand that money money buys politicians and buys policy. There's there's no like you don't have to do any polling on that. You know that people believe that, um, and they don't like it. Um, the second thing uh, that you have to uh, that you really have to do is change the political. Uh, you know, you have to change political norms, and you have to if you want to do this, you have to you have to do it every day. You know, Democrats say, well, I'm for this and then then for 10 other things. You have to say, I'm for this and that's the only thing I'm for because it's the most important and leads to all the others. And you have to say it every day in every way that we got to get money out of politics. And uh, the second thing that makes this possible is social media. Uh, uh, The Me Too movement is a social media movement and it's also, by the way, a a perfect example of changing social norms. And it changes – it changed pretty damn fast, I think you'd have to agree. so that there is a way around uh, around the people with money, which is social media. It is threatening to them, um, and it it with that combination and the, and the sort of frustration that almost almost all of us feel about our political system today. Um, I think we have an opening. It may have to get worse before it gets better. Although I would have to say this week, it's hard to imagine it getting worse. <laughs> yep. The um, I got to say something about dialogue and talking to the other side with you. You, interestingly, I haven't mentioned it, but men, people may not know it, but you teach at George Mason University, which is known as a libertarian hotbed of thought and economics that is dominated by the Koch brothers, and they give all this money there. How do you get along there? You have articulated a set of ideas that do not seem to match, but you seem you write about it as a nice place with smart people and you enjoy the conversation with them. I do. Well, you know, a little tale out of school. Um, the president of the university, the previous president, um, I, he wanted to offer me a job and, uh, as a professor and I thought that was a pretty intriguing idea after 25 years as a journalist and I wanted to teach economics. Uh, the economics department wouldn't have me. So I'm in, I'm in, I was in the political science department. Now I'm in the public policy school, same thing. Uh, but so they didn't. But 
they also refused to cross with my course. And now they do. And I'm pretty good friends with most of those guys. You know, they are, they are, they're almost all conservative libertarian. Uh, let me just say they're all libertarian, and many of them are also quite conservative. Um, but they're, the, they're some of the best libertarian economists in the country. Um, and the quality of our economics department is probably higher than the quality of all of our other departments. That's partly because the Koch brothers lavish them with a lot of money and they're able to attract uh, really good people. Um, and as long as they don't uh, uh, turn their, their classrooms into uh, instruments of propaganda, that's fine. Whatever they do on their own and their own research is fine. Um, and most of them are pretty good teachers. Um, and so I don't have a problem with that. We also have a pretty good dialogue. And while I may sound like I'm very liberal, um, I'm actually sort of pro-capitalist. That's why I wrote the book. Um, I'm sort of a center-left guy. I'm not a really left guy, although some of the, I'm a sort of radical centrist. I have some radical ideas, but um, I'm also pretty skeptical of what government can do. The government can do some things well, but uh, there are some things I would, as, as you could see maybe from the earlier comments, I don't want the government saying you must have workers on your board or, you know, you must take 10 percent of your profits and give them to, uh, to employees. I, I, don't, I don't like that. I like there to be competing models so that the best model emerges and uh, so people have an incentive to create new models. Um, I wanted to ask one more question about um, the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Judge Kavanaugh. You're kind of worried about him economically. Can you, yes. can you lay that out? He is part of a movement um, that the Federalist Society has launched, but he's actually one of the leading intellectual lights here. So, by the way, is Neil Gorsuch, uh, Donald Trump's other appointee. Um, who basically are trying to undo a pr precedent called the Chevron precedent. And that precedent says that the court shall defer to the agencies that have expertise and that, that write regulations, that they shall defer to their judgment when the law is not very clear um, about something, including about the powers of the regulatory agency. So that there's what's something called Chevron deference. Neil Gorsuch and um, Brett Kavanaugh don't believe in Chevron deference. They want to overturn Chevron and they want to impose their judge-made rule, which is that if it's a major regulation, unless the law, the statute expressly says you can do exactly that, then you can't do it. Well, there's no way to write laws like that because you're always – Technology is always changing. Situations are always changing. You'd have to change the laws every three or four years and, you know, you know, Jerome, how hard it is to get anything done in the Congress. Uh, and that's just the way, by the way, business interests want it. Uh, they don't want there to be laws. They don't want there to be regulation. They say they want good regulation, but that's just a hoax. They never met a major regulation they actually thought was good. Uh, and here's now a judicial philosophy of which Brett Kavanaugh is one of the leading proponents, which is if it's a major regulation, then not only – and it's not authorized by the statute expressly and explicitly, 
And by the way, if it doesn't pass a cost-benefit test um, that tends to tilt against regulation, and by the way, if the agency hasn't addressed every concern that they get from business that is to be regulated, then we will throw that regulation out. And that's the way they – when they get a case – that challenges regulation, that's the way they rule. So if you uh, care about environmental regulation, if you care about worker uh, protection, care about consumer protection, if you care about financial regulation, all those will go out the window if the Gorsuch-Kavanaugh-Roberts wing of that court becomes the majority. Stephen Perlstein is the author of Can American Capitalism Survive? Why Greed is Not Good, Opportunity is Not Equal, and Fairness Won't Make Us Poor. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2008 and uh, teaches at George Mason. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. You can see Stephen Perlstein tonight at the bookstall in Winnetka at 630. There's a talk, a question and answer, and a signing of the new book. Yeah. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place, and we'll find out how agave and mezcal are helping school children in Mexico. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. Lou Banks is a co-founder of an organization called SACRED. It's a clever acronym for Saving Agave for Culture, Recreation, Education, and Development. It uses traditional and artisanal agave spirits to improve the quality of life of children in rural Mexico. Good to see you again, Lou. Very glad to be back, Jerome. Explain the whole proposition here, because I don't think most people will get it, agave helping children in Mexico. (laughs) What's going down? Sure. Well, if you get children drunk, it turns out they learn... (laughs) No. No. I just completely destroyed my 501c3 rating. Okay. So um, agave, agave is a sugar source. Just like, you know, like like grains are a sugar source and cane cane is a sugar source. Um, But it's... It's a sugar source that takes so long to reach maturity that it's unlike any other sugar source. And as a consequence, it's been brought into daily life in Mexico um, in a way that's really reverential. I mean the fact that the acronym is sacred is not an accident. It's not like that's the only word we could come up with. The agave is literally sacred in these communities. So it's not, it's not as unusual as say using wine or beer – for education. In these communities, they view agave as a sacred thing. So, so what we do is we, we do the same thing. We use it as a sacred thing. We bring agave spirits back here to Chicago and we hold tastings. And 100% of the money that we raise at those tastings goes back to the communities to, to build libraries, to build greenhouses, to replant agave, to do earthquake relief since the earthquakes of last year. And this area you're active in is Oaxaca and 
to tell us about the people and the places that you are at. Oh my goodness. I love Oaxaca. Um, it, most of the work that I do is in Oaxaca, though I also spend time in Puebla and Mexico City. Just recently spent some time in Michoacan and in uh, Jalisco as well. Um, uh, but Oaxaca is the, it's the, the second most impoverished state. It's the second most impoverished state in Mexico, a, a country that's generally impoverished. Um, but even having said that, and, and my, my Spanish is non-existent, um, and even having said that, the hospitality that I receive when I go to these communities is unlike anything that I've seen anywhere else. Um, I, I happen to be in, uh, in very rural Oaxaca uh, the week before uh, Trump was inaugurated. And, you know, here, we, here I'm from a country where our soon-to-be president uh, had referred to Mexicans as, as rapists and criminals. Literally, people were welcoming. There was one couple. They welcomed me into their home. They let us let me stay overnight in a place that didn't have any hotels where I was going to have to sleep in my car. One couple, before they came to get me to make that offer to say, come stay with us, killed a chicken, assuming I was going to have to stay there the night and would need something to eat. They killed the chicken so they could cook dinner for me. Just really sweet people. And the project that you're associated with and the proceeds of these uh, Mezcal events that we're going to talk about <laughs> is going to, to go to – they've got um, 10,000 agave. Plants. Yeah, I'm sorry. I guess we should get to the point. Uh, so, yeah. So there's this school in uh, one of the communities in Oaxaca called Zachila. Uh, it's, there's two parts of the town, but the part where I spend my time uh, is literally a community of twelve to 15,000 squatters. These families have set up their homes uh, around the dump site, around the garbage dump site in Oaxaca uh, so, so that they can go to the dump, take out the recyclables, and that's how they make their money is recycling. So, so they have almost no government services. The middle school there has an agricultural program where they teach the kids how to farm. And they ran out of water because, again, they have no government services. So the person teaching agriculture, his family has been raising agave from seed, farming agave from seed for a decade or more. And he thought, well, we don't have water. Agave doesn't use water. Let's teach these kids how to grow agave from seed. And uh, they, they now they've got ten thousand plants. <laughs> well, they had ten thousand. They had ten thousand plants from the first year that they did this. They contacted uh, Seconda, this wonderful nonprofit uh, that's hands on the ground in Oaxaca uh, that we've been funding for other projects. And and Seconda came to us and said they've they've got these ten thousand tobala agave. Can you help us do something with them? You know, in the meantime, we've got all of these these maestro mescaleros, these family producers of agave spirits who need agave. And the agave is starting to dry up because multinationals are coming in, buying up agave farms. So what are these guys going to do for agave? And then here's this beautiful project where these children are learning something that they can, they can use later to, to build their families around, to build a community around. Um, so we, we bought a whole bunch of those agave. I think I think at the end of the day, we, we bought like 2,500 of them and gave them away to different mescaleros. 
I'm talking with Lou Banks. He's the co-founder of an organization called Sacred, Saving Agave for Culture, Recreation, Education, and Development. They're active in Oaxaca, and they use traditional artisanal agave spirits to improve the quality of life and children in rural Mexico. Um, explain your attraction to agave. It is it is the sugar. It is the it's mezcal. The is the sugar? Yeah, you know, it's like there's a there are four hundred things I want to say about agave spirits, and of course we we don't have enough time to do even four things. But the sugar to me is the starting point because all alcohol starts life as sugar. And if you think about the finest wines in the world, those come from grapes. The sugar comes from grapes that took a maximum of four months to reach maturity. If you think about scotch, like a a $400 bottle of 35-year-old scotch, that comes from grains that took a maximum of six months to reach maturity. With agave, with agave, the minimum – is four years. And you've got agave plants that will take as much as 40 years to reach maturity. That's going to produce much more complex sugars, which I would contend produces much more complex flavors. What's going to taste more like the place that it comes from? A four-month-old grape or a 25-year-old agave? You answer your own question on that one. Yeah, it was rhetorical. Now, the... um so you've got all these uh, tastings and things coming up. You're you're doing a couple events. Yeah, I'm doing like a million events. It's October. You got to do a lot of events in October. Everybody does. Yeah. So the the big event is Mexico in a bottle. That is uh, Chicago's largest mezcal festival, and by definition, the Midwest's largest mezcal festival, which will be held Sunday, October fourteenth. There's going to be something like thirty five brands represented, something like a hundred and twenty spirits being poured, including a whole bunch of spirits that are not currently commercially available here in Chicago. Um, some that are just entering the market. So it's a great place both for somebody new who's interested in learning about the spirits and for somebody who's like a 100% geek agave head uh, to, to taste what's going to be available. And so that's Thursday, October 18th at Sleeping Village. No. no. That's a different event. It is, it, is, it. it is Sunday, October 14th. That's okay. That's, I'm glad you said that because that's Oaxaca Ganza, which is going to be at Sleeping Village on Thursday the 18th. That's a big fundraiser just for sacred. That's what I'm interested in. Let's get these kids what they need. Absolutely. Well, and, and to be fair, Mexico in a Bottle also gives us every year a piece of their, uh, their ticket. Take. Yeah, the take. So, so yeah, everybody, everybody involved – in agave that I've met wants to do something to help these communities. But but our big fundraiser, Sacred's big fundraiser, is at Sleeping Village on Thursday the 18th. There's a band called Not For Profit, which is funny because most bands these days are not for profit. But there's a <laughs> band called Not For Profit. It's like a 12-piece band that's going to be playing. We've got Prairie, uh, Prairie Grass Cafe, who's going to be serving food. Uh, I'll be there serving spirits. And the guys at Sleeping Village serve some of the best cocktails in town. There you go. And then you end up uh, helping people in Oaxaca. Now, the can you explain what it's like to be at a artisanal mezcal uh, session where where you're where you're making this stuff? Uh, uh, where you're making it or yeah. where you're tasting it? I want to be at a, uh, no, I want to be at the making. I want the oh, fire. So, yeah. I want the whole thing. Yeah, it's really beautiful. So so what you're what you're going to see if you're there it depends on the timing. When you arrive, but what you're going to see is a small family working together, 
to roast agave in a stone-lined earthen oven, literally a hole in the ground lined with stones. You set a fire. The stones get super hot. The fire goes out, and then you throw a bunch of agave, again, 4 to 40-year-old plants, into that pit, and you cover it with with burlap or or with leaves and then with dirt, and you let it cook underground for anywhere from three to seven days, kind of like you might cook a whole pig. Um, then when you pull it out, you mill it. And the milling, like there are a number of ways to do it. And sometimes you just throw it in a wood chipper, but sometimes you're literally, you're going to be hand milling it using wooden mallets, or it's going to be a horse pulling a stone wheel to crush the agave. And then you put that crushed agave into a wooden vat to open air ferment, where the natural, the natural yeast that are on the plants around that fermenter are going to influence the flavor of what you get. And then after that open-air fermentation – and open-air fermentation is a tricky thing um, because you also have all of these other um, uh, bacteria in the air that want to take over and turn it into a sour. But, but open air from, after the open-air fermentation, you then distill in a wood-fired still – which means you're using your hands to figure out if the temperature is the right temperature for distillation. And if you get it wrong, you've just ruined a 20-year-old plant. So all those ingredients that are negotiable are what makes artisanal stuff artisanal stuff, is what makes a really good producer, somebody who can do it, really good. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, You don't... don't if you're doing this right, you're not trying to replicate the flavor every single time. It's you know it's, you don't expect your 2013 uh, Bordeaux to taste like your 2015. It's going to taste like a specific point in time. So you look for the maestros, uh, the maestro mescaleros, with the great palates because everything they make is going to taste great and it's going to taste different each time they make it. Lou Bank, um, that's an amazing, amazing passion that you have for mezcal. And I'm glad you've turned it into something that helps people and helps the community in Oaxaca. I am too, and thank you. Mexico in a Bottle is on October 14th, and you can also join Sacred for an evening of music, delicious food, and rare spirits on Thursday, October 18th at Sleeping Village. If you go to sacredagave.org, you will get more information about that, sacredagave.org. Lou Bank, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me again, Jerome. Tomorrow on Worldview, it'll be Friday. Uh, there's the possibility of being preempted by multiple events. and But if we aren't, you will hear from Milos Stalek, as usual, our film contributor, and we'll talk a bit about the Chicago International Film Festival. Hope you can join us. Thanks to Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Gali Abdullah for production assistance. And thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco also. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.